0: Okay, Jesse, last week's Thanksgiving episode was super tragic. What's the story
1: this time? When a multimillionaire is shot dead in his home, suspicion is cast upon a vengeful ex-business partner, a family member, and the man's much younger live-in girlfriend. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Jessie, welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about two timers, heart piners, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find
0: Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod, and on Facebook by searching Love
1: Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. And guess what? We're together this week! Yay! Our hearts are so happy for a multitude of reasons. Number one, we get to be together. Number Mm -hmm. two, y'all showed up this week in those reviews. No, seriously, how many did we have? I mean, we must have had like nine or ten, maybe. Yeah, that was awesome, and you guys were awesome, just awesome, 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 super fun reviews
0: too, not just like yeah, great podcast. I have to say,
1: you guys are creative. You're smart beautiful. I mean, kind. The, the social media pro- profiles that I've seen have also shown me that they're all a very good looking <laughs> bunch as well. <laughs> We're very thankful. We're very thankful to you. We hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday and are fully into uh, holiday decorating. We like also I am. do have some new stickers. Um, yes, yes, yes. We haven't put them
0: up on the merch we haven't, yet, but we will post a photo when we're done recording this episode. Okay, cool. So you guys can see them, but we will send us your you know, screenshot and yep. we'll get you the new stickers. Very cute.
1: It's very cute. Andy did a great job. You designed that all by yourself. I did. And we took
0: the advice of a couple of listeners to yes. put podcast on it. So it doesn't just say love murder. Yeah, we so. don't
1: want people who are driving behind you to think that you love murder. Yeah. We want them to know that you love the love murder podcast. Yes. <laughs> that's us. <laughs> Um, okay. On that note, we love you guys, and let's start the show. Let's do it. Wealthy Men Only, the title of the personal ad read. But that hadn't been what caught 52-year-old Bill McLaughlin's attention, though he certainly did apply. No, it was the beguiling brunette beauty and the glamour shot above the title. The woman's big brown eyes and high cheekbones drew him in. She was also kind of like wearing this like shruggy thing with her shoulders exposed. It was...
0: Was it also like a little blurry? Yes, and like, of okay. course. It was
1: classic glamour <laughs> shot. As did her description. Single white female, 5'5", five 100 five, pounds, classy, well-educated, fun, and knows how to take care of her man. Oh. Looking for an older man, 30 plus years, who knows how to treat a woman. You take care of me. And I'll take care of you. Wow, she's not leaving anything up to chance over here. How much were classified ads? Do you remember? No. So apparently, this was in like a special personal okay. ads like magazine.
0: Curious, because you have to obviously usually pay something for ads. You do. In the paper, yeah. Yeah.
1: I don't know how much she paid for this, guys. The main source that I'm using this week is "I'll take care of you." By Caitlin Rother. And later in the book, she describes this particular. One ad magazine as an auto trader for sex, basically. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> so, okay. Bill's interest was piqued. <laughs> he could certainly use someone taking care of him. And goodness knows he was good at taking care of others. Multimillionaire entrepreneur Bill was still finalizing his divorce from his wife of nearly 25 years Whoa. when he That's... spotted the personal ad in early 1991. It's a long time. It's no short marriage. No. And then you're getting out of it and yeah. the world has changed. Kids. Kids, yes, his beloved children were all grown. He had three grown children. And his Newport Beach mansion sat empty. When he did meet the woman in the ad in person, a 26-year-old divorced mother of two young children named Nanette Johnston, the connection was immediate. She was vibrant, charming, and oh, man, was she sexy. But more than that, she told Bill she had two advanced degrees and she was clearly a good mother. Nanette was deeply interested in his work and business dealings in a way that his ex-wife had never been. Bill was so entranced with the young woman that he moved her and her children into his fancy six-bedroom Newport Beach home that sat in the ritzy gated community of Balboa Coves. Only a couple months after they started dating, whoa! So she struck gold. She she did. She was digging, and she struck. Yeah. Little did Bill know, though, that this relationship would lead to fraud, embezzlement, infidelity, a devious ex-NFL player, and a murder plot that would take 17 years before the criminals were brought to justice. This is a story of unabated lust and greed and what happens when more is never enough. This is very, uh, like Dateline, huh? Quiero (laughs) más. So let's talk about Bill. William McLaughlin was born on October 12th, 1939, one of three brothers who were raised by working class parents on the south side of Chicago. Oh. Yeah, he's a real up and comer. Bill was very intelligent and he was super motivated from a very young age. So the family didn't have a lot of money, but even his brothers weren't mad about this. They pooled all of their resources to send him to a private high school where he could shine and his talents could be developed while they sent his other two brothers to public. Whoa. Yeah. And and the brothers didn't even care. They were like, he was just so much smarter than us. It just made sense that he would go to private school. Okay. Yeah. That's that's amazing. Yeah. They weren't even bitter about it. In his teens, Bill told family members that he was going to be a millionaire by 30. And this was like not common for obviously that neighborhood, you know? Yeah. Did they even have 30 under 30 in Forbes at
0: that time? (laughs) I don't
1: think so. (laughs) I don't think so. I also think, I mean, no offense to younger listeners, I always thought that was such a crazy thing to try to reach for. Yeah. I, I think that there was like some meme or something that was going around as well that was like, I don't care about like 20 under 20, 30 under 30. I want to see like the 60 year old that rebuilt their life that like got a patent at like 67. I want to see like, you know, people like who went through like terrible divorces come back. Like, let's yeah. see what some old people are doing here. Yeah. <laughs> So he was like, I'm gonna be a millionaire by 30. After high school, he went into the US Marine Corps where he served in the Korean War. Whoa. Yeah, and he developed an athletic discipline there that would keep him trim and active into his middle age. Okay. he always seemed like somebody who was very disciplined. Okay, after several years in the military, Bill enrolled at Loyola Marymount University in L.A., the first in his family to ever attend college. Wow! There he would meet some lifelong friends who described Bill as screaming smart and a lover of jazz music, as well as a proficient jazz musician in his own right who played clarinet and sax.
0: No way! Yes, no, so he's clarinet. Very
1: Internet. that's what I played in third grade
0: oh my god really
1: oh and I was so bad at it I remember <laughs> it was the first thing that I was truly horrific at that I kept trying to make work and I remember literally crying and playing like just being like too, too, mm, too, too, mm. like with those dirty little reeds in my mouth and my mom coming up and being like you don't seem to enjoy this <sighs> I think that it is time to quit and move on <sighs> and I did that's smart I know, it was better it's for good everyone. good to know when to quit. Including my parents who had to listen to me crying and yeah. playing.
0: I couldn't imagine your dad tolerating that. No, they didn't. <laughs> they were like, please quit.
1: <laughs> Andy uh, knows very well. Not only does she know my family very well, she just spent two nights with them over <laughs> yeah. Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. So he was also a good clarinet player, unlike myself.
0: <laughs> Jazz clarinet, too, was, like, specific.
1: Very specific. Yes, yes. 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 Bill graduated in 1964 with a bachelor's in biology, and then he met and married a lovely blonde flight attendant who later became a substitute teacher, her name was Sue, two years later in 1966. Yeah, imagine that you get married in 1966 and then you're single again in 1991. No, that's wild. The world is totally different. Bill worked in marketing for various pharmaceutical and biomedical companies. His goal was to invent and produce medical devices that would not only save people's lives, but hopefully improve the quality of their life during treatment. So making them more comfortable. And streamlining processes. Throughout the very late 60s and early 70s, the couple had three children. Kim was the first, followed by Jenny and Kevin, all exactly two years apart. In the 1970s, Bill also earned his MBA from Pepperdine University. Whoa. Yep. And went on to create a special dialysis catheter called the McLaughlin Duocath. Bill's biggest contribution to medical science, and the one that turned out to be the most lucrative, was a blood plasma separator he created with an engineer pseudonymed Jacob Horowitz. Horowitz? Horowitz, but that's not his real name. So... Caitlin Rother gave him a pseudonym in the book. And I also watched a 2020 about this case that came out last September and the perfect murder on I.D. about this case. Okay. And I think I.D. mentioned his name, but the 2020 like purposely didn't name him. So I'm assuming he would like to not be associated with this story. So I shall use the pseudonym from the book.
0: Which is such a shame because it seems like there's a lot of really amazing medical achievements. I
1: do think that potentially he went on to do other things and didn't want to be associated with this story for reasons that will become very clear.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Developed in 1982, the device extracted a donor's blood, separated the plasma, and then returned the remaining blood flow to the donor in a continuous flow. Whoa. Now, this was safer than the previous practice, which kept the extraction and the return of the blood as two separate processes, And was therefore vulnerable to human error and somebody accidentally sending the wrong person's blood back to the donor. No, not good. Yeah, not good. So this was actually streamlining the process for both the practitioners and making it safer for the actual patients. Okay. Bill and Jacob built the company around this device with Bill as the CEO and marketing genius and Jacob basically lending his engineering talents. He's the one who basically built the device. Okay. Eventually, the men had a terrible falling out. Bill said that Jacob's prototype didn't work exactly right and that he actually had to fire him and bring in a younger engineer to kind of streamline the whole thing and make it functional. Okay. Jacob claimed that he had built the device completely himself and like he had basically kicked him out at the last minute on purpose to kick him off the patent and claim all the money and prestige for himself essentially. Whoa. Okay. So there's, he said, he said, basically here. Lawsuits were exchanged, but the battle really heated up when Bill sold the company for millions of dollars and the promise of tens of millions of dollars in royalties for however long in the future, maybe forever. Okay. The two men would remain in litigation for almost the next decade. Whoa. Yeah. So this was pretty hostile. While Bill's fortunes grew, so did his lifestyle. He purchased the Balboa Cove's house, which was described by former DA Matt Murphy as several thousand square feet and six bedrooms. And this is where he and Sue would predominantly raise their three children. So I zillowed Balboa Cove's on the canal, which is where they lived at the time. And I found a four bedroom with a measly 2,600 square foot. (laughs) compared to several hundred thousand, several thousand rather. And it was going for $7.5 million. Yeah, that
0: little area is insane.
1: Have you been over yeah. there?
0: I used to work with a couple of boutiques over there and it's wild. Really, really wealthy, huh? Yes, yeah. It's not, you don't fuck around. It's, okay. And it's beautiful and everyone drives like little carts around and it's like,
1: <laughs> it's... It's- yes, and this was a very, like, a big gated community, very safe. Yep. Everybody's rich. Yeah, so that's crazy. So I can't even imagine what his actual house would be worth today if this smaller house is $7.5 Yeah, million. no, a lot. The family also had homes in Las Vegas and Hawaii. Bill developed a passion for flying. He became a pilot and even bought his own plane. That is such a rich person hobby. Yes. <laughs>
0: It's only a rich person hobby. Like a rich person hobby. (laughs) There's so many people who probably want to get their pilot's license who can't like even think about it. I I always hate it when there's like hobbies and sports that only wealthy people can play. I think it's so unfair.
1: I was trying to think of like wealthy people hobbies and it's like golf, equestrian, you know, like fancy horseback riding.
0: Which that I think makes me most angry because (laughs) it's just like it's – horseback riding and like gathering horses should be just like part of it should, the be, land. Accessible yes, it should be accessible for everyone accessible to everyone and
1: it's just not Well I think people can get their pilot's license they just don't get to buy a plane. Yeah, but then you have to like rent or charter a plane. Yeah, that's also not cheap. No. You're right. You're correct. Yes. So anyway, he did do this and It was good on him. It was. I mean, you if you make that amount of money, you know, he's a self-made man. He could spend it how he likes. Yes,
0: totally. Yes.
1: I'm just saying that there should be a route for people who (laughs) don't have the funds. You know, Andy's over here and she's like, you know what? People, I'm not gonna give them food. I'm not gonna give them insurance. I'm gonna give them horseback riding and pilot's (laughs) licenses. (laughs) Woman of the (laughs) people I also want them to have food. Yes, I know. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah 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 he got his pilot's license his kids loved it one of their fondest memories was that one day he was just like okay kids like pile in the plane and he took them for a ride over the grand canyon also like terrifying though <laughs> also terrifying I, I i don't know private planes and um people get their pilot's license they shouldn't scare me because that's how like commercial pilots also learn but it's always so terrifying to me <laughs> Yeah, so he was a really, really good dad. All of his kids said that despite his long hours working and the wealth that he accumulated, he was a very hands-on father and that he put family first no matter what. Family first. Absolutely. They just adored their dad. And he helped his wife, Sue, launch the children into college and into their respective careers with pride. But when youngest Kevin left for college, Sue and Bill realized that they had little in common anymore. Okay. Their daughters described it as a classic empty nester divorce that they had kind of put everything into their kids and had stopped caring or communicating with each other. Okay. Super, super duper sad. So Sue was the one who ultimately decided to divorce and she moved permanently to the Hawaii house, which she was ultimately awarded in the split. They had houses in Hawaii and Las Vegas. So, yeah, Bill, like, he, he wasn't acting like a very good husband at the time that they split, obviously. If people are happy, they don't divorce, clearly. But he was really depressed about this. Okay. His daughter said that he would have preferred to work on the marriage, yeah. and she was out. And I, I heard some, like, conflicting reports that, like— you know, maybe he was like drinking too much before even the divorce. I I didn't know if it was before or after, like whatever. But you know, I, I think that there was obviously w- when you're in a divorce, it takes two to tango.
0: And also women like pre-plan and like prepare themselves for things so much in the future. So she could have been thinking about this for years. Well,
1: also what I have found, and I don't mean to stereotype based on gender, but what I've seen myself is that I feel like Women try, try, try in the relationship. Yeah. Like during the relationship, they're always working on communication. They're always trying to get the person to pay attention to them. Yeah. And then they get to a point and they're like, I tried for years. Yeah. I am done. I'm out. I am emotionally done with this. And they move on really well. They move into a new relationship potentially. They move on. They're happy. And the guy who has not worked on the relationship the entire time that the woman was is all of a sudden like, where did you go? What yeah. happened? I you thought everything left. was fine. You just left. You didn't really talk to me about this. Exactly. And it's like, uh. Exactly. And then they're like super messed up after it mm-hmm. Um, when the woman's like, nope, I did all my emotional work in the yeah. relationship. Yeah. So I think that was potentially one of these situations. So afterwards, he was really lonely. All of his kids are already grown. And I think he was lonely about that, too. He loved raising his kids. And then now his wife is gone, too. So Lonely Bill turned to the Lonely Hearts column, a.k.a. the personal ads, to find a companion for love, sex, and more. And hey, it wouldn't hurt if she was a much younger looker. Well, that's exactly what he found in Nanette Johnston. Nanette told Bill that she wrote business plans for a living and also occasionally worked in sales. She was bright, he told a friend, and very, very sexy. Bill felt proud to go to work social events and business cocktail hours with Nanette on his arm. To his cousin Barbara, he said that the appeal of Nanette was that she was interesting and interested, as well as being a beautiful young mother, and he genuinely loved her kids. So I think there was... That aspect, like why the kids moved in so soon after they started dating, was that he wanted his house to be full of children sounds again, you know? He did speak a little more crassly to his brother about the relationship. He said that Nanette was an incredible piece of ass and phenomenal in bed.
0: Amazing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) An incredible piece of ass. An incredible piece of ass. That's my scientific evaluation. Yes. So no one really blinked when she moved in so soon. That's another thing I feel like a lot of times when men divorce or their even if their wife dies, a lot of times they move on very quickly. Yeah. Sweeping gender generalizations here, guys, on Love Murder Today. So she moved in very, very quickly. It was within like two or three months. Okay.
0: I mean, that's that's quick.
1: That is quick. But for some from reason- From meeting
0: though, not from divorcing.
1: No, from meeting. But I think actually when they were getting together, he was still finalizing the divorce. They had been separated for some time, but he had a lot of assets. So obviously it takes a long time for people to divorce when there's a lot of money at yeah. hand. Yeah, yeah. So I think it, during this meeting time, and even when she's moving in, I think that they were still finalizing their divorce. But the marriage had effectively been yeah, over for they a They were while. both, yeah, they were over it. So no one was like really concerned. I know his oldest daughter was around the same age as her. Oh. So that was a little weird, obviously. Yeah, that's sometimes weird for the daughter. Exactly. But other than that, she just wanted her dad to be happy. Yeah. And this woman was clearly making him happy. One thing that people thought was a little strange was that when she moved in, she hung a almost life-size portrait of herself in the nude in their foyer.
0: Was it a photo or a painting? It was a painting. (laughs) Who painted it? I don't know. I don't know. Do you have a picture of this?
1: I do not. I really wish I did. It's
0: really sad. You, you know, don't... before
1: I do the Instagram, I'm going to do some serious googling. But okay. I did not see it in anything from my cursory googling searches. Like over the couch, it just said that it was in a very predominant. Okay, that's spot in the crazy. House.
0: How can she find time between her part-time
1: sales jobs that she sometimes and her advanced does? degrees to also pose in the nude? I do not know. That's dedication, right there. There is. Well, they could have painted it from a photo. I don't know if this is like Renaissance or she's like you know in Titanic over here. <laughs> That's what do <laughs> you say? She's not like paint me like one of your French girls over here. Jack, paint me
0: like one of your French girls. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> yes, uh, sometime. Within a couple years of them meeting, he did give Nanette a gigantic diamond ring. And Nanette began referring to Bill as her fiancé and planning a wedding. But some of Bill's family and friends said that he was actually reluctant to get married again so soon after his divorce. And that this was more of an effort to appease her. A promise ring. It was more of a humongous promise ring. Mm -hmm. And a lot of his friends at that time were saying, like, there's no rush. You know, he had a vasectomy, so he wasn't planning on having children with Nanette. Interesting. At this time, at least. So, you know, they were like, if you're not having kids, there's no pressure. There's no rush. And, I mean, even if he was planning on having kids, she's very young. Yeah. You know, the time they got together, she was only 26. Okay. So, yeah, they're like, please wait, give it a moment, get to know her better, settle into life together. Yeah. And and he did listen to that advice. You know, there was still like always, it was always like on the timeline that they'd get married someday. Yeah. But he was not rushing it. Okay. He did treat her like a wife in almost every other capacity. He lavished her with gifts. He bought her designer clothes, jewelry. He gave her a car. He bought her breast implants. Oh, yeah, and other anything she wanted to get done, obviously in Orange County a lot of people get nipped and tucked. Mm. He took her and the kids on exotic vacations, but even more than that, he made her the beneficiary of a million-dollar life insurance policy. What? Mm Mm-hmm. He also put a provision in his will for her, and he gave her access to all of his bank accounts with the permission to take what she needed to pay household bills. So Nanette got everything she wanted. In October of 1994, the couple toured a 5.5 million dollar Laguna Beach home. And he told his friends that he was thinking of selling his other houses, selling like Valboa Cove's and the Las Vegas house. He also had another beach house in Newport Beach. Oh my god, that's so much money. It's so much money. So he was like, maybe I'll sell like Balboa Cove's and like Vegas to get this Laguna Beach house she really wants. And in today's money, $5.5 million would be more like $10 million. Wow. This is a serious, serious purchase they were considering at this point. But life was not all good times. In fact, Bill's son, Kevin, had suffered a horrific accident. Around the time that Bill had met Nanette, 21-year-old Kevin had been skateboarding when he was hit by a drunk driver going 65 miles per hour. How? This poor guy. And Kevin is so, so cute, so handsome. He just had such an amazing personality. And he did after the accident as well. It just obviously changed his life forever. I mean, he somehow survived. And then he was in a coma for four months. Holy shit. I mean, it's incredible. Incredible. And and probably a testament to how healthy he was, how vibrant he was. Yeah. So he did pull through, but of course— Did that person go to jail forever? I don't actually know. I should have looked that up. But I hope they were penalized to the fullest extent of the law. I just don't understand drunk driving. No, guys, don't do it. The holidays are around. Do
0: not do it. Get an Uber
1: get an uber or like just crash where crash five hours. wherever you are yeah Whenever. exactly no big deal call somebody for a ride yeah you're going to end up either hurting somebody like this poor kid or yourself getting your ass busted so, and in jail obviously this was hard on him yes yeah, so he he did survive but he had suffered a brutal traumatic brain injury.
0: Ugh. How, where are you driving 65 miles an hour where someone's skateboarding? I don't know. I'm like trying to imagine the kids skateboarding in my
1: neighborhood where it's like max 35, and when people go 40, it seems like they're speeding. I don't know exactly where Kevin was skateboarding at this time either. So he had to go to a rehab center for a year and a half. And lived there while he learned how to speak and how to walk. Oh, again. so he like had to do full rehab. Yes. It was very hard, frustrating and painful for him. I mean, these therapies are no joke. It's just so unbelievably frustrating to have to struggle every single day to do something that you used to do without thinking. No. Yeah. I can't even imagine. Yeah. And, and it was really hard. It was At 21. Really hard. At 21 years old, you're in the prime of your life, you know? So it it was really hard for Kevin. After he was released from the rehab facility, he went to live with Bill and Nanette and her children okay. so that Bill could take care of his son.
0: Okay. And was Nanette nice to him?
1: Nanette was actually really nice to him. They got along very, very well. In fact, the only tension in the home was between Bill and Kevin because I'm sure that being a 21-year-old guy, before the accident, he drank and maybe smoked a little marijuana. Yeah and when he suffered this accident he was obviously going through hard times and he kind of fell back on drinking and smoking
0: which isn't probably the best if he was on medication and stuff exactly yeah
1: and it made bill really upset okay and it was it was really you know in general bad for him so essentially bill told him if you don't stop drinking and and using drugs that i'm going to put you in a care facility okay like you won't get to remain home with me you'll have to go live somewhere And Kevin responded to that. He ended up starting to go to AA, which is actually really helpful to him. He became like a secretary in the AA chapter that he was in and a part of like the whole community. But, you know, Bill would test him every once in a while. He had like home drug tests that he would like randomly spring on him. So, you know, as much as Kevin was really thankful to his father— He was also a little frustrated because he's a grown man who, you know, has to be drug tested and his dad's forcing him to go to AA. So there was a little tension there, but there was also a lot of love between them. Okay. There were more stressors on Bill's plate as well. The ongoing legal battle with Jacob Horowitz and Nanette's desire to push their relationship forward. In June 1994, Kevin and his girlfriend were at a dinner with the couple when Nanette began to badger Bill about reversing his vasectomy. What? What? I yeah, mean,
0: that's why guys get vasectomies. So because you can reverse it, you can't reverse it for women.
1: Yeah. So basically, they noticed that it was obviously a conversation that this couple had had several times. If they're arguing about it in a restaurant in front of Bill's son, Bill's son and yeah. his girlfriend. Yes. I guess there was like a baby at the next table, and she's like, "Okay, when are you going to actually reverse your vasectomy so we can do this?" And he's like, I "How old I don't are her know. kids?" Her kids were, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of four and six at this point. Shit, that's, and then,
0: a, that's a lot to take on then.
1: And then they got a little older. Obviously, they they were together for a few years. Yeah. So basically, there's that. I mean, this poor guy, he's like 55 in 94. He's got three grown kids. He's taking care of two young yep. kids, like, with love in his heart. I feel like that'd be enough. Yeah. I'd be like, thank you for, you know, helping me raise these children. Yeah, but she obviously wants more. She wants that. What do you call it, Andy? The bag. Is it the bag? Is that what it's called when you when Sealing you get a rich, the bag? Rich man's baby. Yeah. You a seal rich the bag. a rich man's baby. A rich man.
0: <laughs> you seal a rich man's baby. You get the bag.
1: <laughs> yeah. Seal yeah. the bag. She was going to. She's going to try to seal that bag. So in October of 1994, Bill finally closed the chapter on the years-long litigation with Horowitz. Ugh that had ended up costing both parties hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, I can't even imagine. The arbiter ruled in Bill's favor. So apparently the parent company that had bought their company had been putting half of the royalties into a holding account. So essentially, like, if the litigation went the other way, that they would have that, like, saved for Horowitz. Okay. So Bill had been essentially getting half of what he was due So they ruled that Bill was to be given $9 million, like right from the the get-go. And more than that, even the next $18 million would be given to Bill and the parent company before Horowitz got another cent. Whoa. Yeah. It was a huge victory, though— Horowitz later said that it wasn't—like, he still had gotten some of his royalties, apparently, in this litigation, and he also said that he was appealing right away. Of course. He's like, I'm not going to lay down without a fight here. With the money coming in, Nanette and Bill toured even fancier mansions and geared up for a joyous holiday season. On Thursday, December 15th, Nanette took her children to her son Christopher's soccer game. Kevin had decided not to attend his usual Thursday night AA meeting that night— And he had a nice dinner with Bill instead. After dinner, Kevin retired to his upstairs bedroom to listen to Bad Religion and Megadeth on his Walkman, while Bill settled into his usual perch at the dining room table to do paperwork and enjoy a nightcap. A little after 9pm that night, Kevin was startled by a series of thundering gunshots from downstairs. He heard them in a very specific pattern. It was two shots, a pause, two shots, pause, two shots. And then their golden retriever started barking like crazy. Kevin jumped off his bed and hobbled down two flights of stairs just about as fast as he could. But it did still take him at least a full minute, if not more, to get downstairs because of his injury. Yeah, that's so quick though. Yeah, he was going as fast fast as he possibly could when he did get down to the kitchen he discovered his father shot multiple times he was lying on the ground in his robe and slippers with blood pooling in the kitchen tiles beneath him he did not see any evidence of a gun and there was no shooter there okay so kevin grabbed the phone and he frantically dialed 911 unfortunately due to his slurred speech the 911 operator could not understand him.
0: Okay, but don't they still send someone? They did eventually. It's just, okay.
1: it's really heartbreaking to listen to the 911 call. Did you listen to it? So it's on the 2020 and The Perfect Order. Okay. So it's like snippets of it were on both shows that I watched. And, oh. It, it devastating? It's devastating because he's so upset. Yeah. And his sister said too that, like, when he gets upset, it's harder for him to speak too. Of course. And not only just the brain injury, he had a tracheotomy. Okay, for four months while he was in the coma. So he had a lot of scar tissue in his throat from that procedure. So it was it was both of those things combined to make it very difficult for him to speak. Yeah. And he is basically begging them saying, my father's been shot. My dad's been shot. And they're like, your dog's been shot? Like, what's going on? You know? And he oh my is like in tears, basically, trying to get somebody. Yeah, no, I he, could not listen to that. No, it was, it was terrible. And he doesn't know whether his father's alive or dead. He thinks like if they get an ambulance there, there's a chance he could survive every second count. So they shot him six times? Six times. Holy shit. Yeah. So luckily they do, just like you said, Andy, they do send somebody I, yeah, out Yeah, I feel like if someone's calling 911 and you can't understand them, like what if they've already
0: been shot? What if they've been yeah. stabbed? Like you mm-hmm. have to send someone to that address immediately.
1: So they did send an ambulance and the police to the Balboa Cove's address. And when they arrived, it was clear to them that Bill was already deceased. Whoa. So there was nothing that Kevin could have done. He tried his best and he did his best and- there was nothing that was going to save Bill, unfortunately. Okay. The autopsy revealed that Bill had been shot six times with nine millimeter federal Hydra Shock bullets what to the chest. What are those? They're deadly hollow point bullets. What? Yeah. And they had ripped through Bill's torso and heart, killing him almost instantly. Okay. The coroner said that at least two of the bullets, presumably the last two, were shot by only two feet away. So the killer got very close to him. Whoa. All the shots were fired from front to back, downward and to the left. Because Bill was just about 5'10", the coroner said that this indicated that the killer was taller. Okay. So Nets 5'5", so not her. Yeah. At the home's front door, the police found a silver key stuck in the lock. Okay. On further inspection, it appeared that the key had been recently cut at Ace Hardware. Another gold key was found on the doormat as if it had been dropped, Okay, and that one was determined to be a key that opened a pedestrian access gate that led to an asphalt path for biking, jogging, and walking. In 1994, the path led to a bridge that went over the Newport Channel and took the individual to Lido Marine Village, which had a cluster of nightclubs and restaurants. Okay. Only a few hundred yards away. Okay. The responding officers interviewed a traumatized Kevin and collected evidence, including Bill's own gun collection. Nanette came home. I, I was, was going to sure. say, where is she? She was out shopping. So Shopping. Shopping, yeah.
0: So she came home around
1: 10 p.m.
0: I shop often until 10
1: p.m. at night. <laughs> yeah. Never. Right until the mall was closed, essentially. Whatever. Yep. And she did seem surprised, obviously, that her fiancé had been killed at their home. Uh, but she was very cold and calm. Like, uh, in the the recorded first police interview, she's just kind of like, wow, this is just, you know, too much to handle. This is just too much to contemplate. You know, like, but she's like— not overly emotional in a way that the police assumed she would be. So she said that she'd been at her son's soccer game. It had gone into double overtime, and then she'd gone to the mall to do some Christmas shopping. and her kids had gone home with their dad, her first husband. So Nanette had two receipts that showed that she had made purchases at nine twenty nine and nine forty five. show me the receipts. And she did. She did. So
0: she's not pregnant with his baby or married to him, though. But she is no. the beneficiary for everything.
1: She's the beneficiary of one life insurance policy. He had more. Okay, he had more she than also 100.
0: has full access to all of his accounts. She has to full bills. access
1: of his accounts right okay. now. She was a trustee of his will. Okay, and she is allotted a provision. So she has all the things that someone who
0: does marry or yes. has and that kids. was
1: the whole thing with her pushing so hard for them to get married. He kept giving her other things like here's a huge diamond ring, here's access yeah. to my account, yeah. here's your in my will. You know, you don't need to be married if I'm going to give you everything else, you yeah. know? Yeah. So the rest of the family was notified, and the cops began to put together a suspect list. The number one suspect was Nanette. Well, no, Jacob Horowitz at first. Ugh. <laughs> For nine million reasons... Well, but 18 yes, million technically. Yeah, 18 million. But yeah, everyone pointed to him first. Like Kevin said him first. Nanette said him first. His ex-wife said him first. It's his daughter said him first.
0: It's crazy that like from doing something legally correct in America that there's still the like threat of something bad happening. Like,
1: oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Like. But there was like, think about litigating with somebody for 10 years. You're angry for 10 years. And he lost the arbitration in the end, even though he's appealing it. So he was definitely everyone's number one suspect. And they looked up what he was doing where he was and he was 150 miles away in Santa Barbara getting his haircut
0: I honestly don't think that someone who is then appealing and is like I'm still gonna fight for this is gonna come and murder you
1: no that doesn't even make sense obviously you'd be the first suspect yes yeah so they were like excluding any evidence that we find out that he hired a hitman. it's clearly not this guy yeah number two suspect was actually son Kevin Cops, of course, always look at those closest to the victim first, and Kevin had been alone with Bill at the time of the murder. Also, the gated community had very strict rules about giving out keys, and they were supposed to be extremely hard to copy for security purposes, so there was a feeling that it had to be someone within the community and potentially even the house. Okay. Plus, of course, like I said, Kevin and his father had been having those disagreements about his drinking and drug use—
0: and if he's, like, in AA, I'm sure people were like, he probably fraternizes with people who also did drugs yeah. at one point in time.
1: <laughs> exactly. So, they're, they're, you know, they had to look at Kevin. But yeah. there was no gunpowder residue on his hands. No. He was tested immediately. None of the guns in the home had been fired anytime recently. And if he was inside the house, he wouldn't have used or dropped a key at all on the doorstep. No. And he was obviously
0: panicked when he called 911.
1: 100%. That was another piece of evidence that excluded him was that his 911 call was so authentic and so just devastating. And he was so clearly just really upset at his father's death that it seemed, it just did not impossible. yeah, Yeah, it didn't make sense. So that left somebody who would stand to benefit from Bill's murder, and that someone was 29-year-old girlfriend Nanette. Because the house was a crime scene, they asked Nanette and Kevin to move into the beach house, the other beach house in Newport Beach, which they do. And then basically Kevin goes to the beach house for the night. Okay. Okay. And then he went to stay with either his sister or his mother. One of his sisters still lived in California. Another sister was actually teaching in Japan at the time. Awesome. Yeah. And she said that that was like a heartbreaking call to receive. Like you're across the world and you find out your father's been- In the 90s too. Murdered. Yeah. Yeah. It took took a while to get home. Yeah. And then his ex-wife also came from Hawaii. So basically that first night, Kevin went with Nanette. And then after that, he went with his family. Okay. The investigators noted that Nanette at this point and at future dates did not seem worried about an intruder coming to get her or her children. At no point did she express how lucky she and the kids were to not be home at the time of the murder. And at no point did she request protection or even change the locks at the beach house where she was staying with her children. If you knew an armed killer had a key to one of your houses because that's how they got in. Yep. And murdered your fiance. Wouldn't you be scared shitless? No, I'd be like, I need protective services right now. Right now. And also I'm not going to another known house of my fiance's. I'm gonna, you're gonna have to put us up in a hotel or I'm gonna put myself up in a hotel. I would be terrified. So scary. So she didn't ask for any of that. Didn't change the locks. I mean, they started following her and she also never said... Oh my God. Oh my God. What if my kids had been home? Oh my God. What if I what if I had been sitting in the kitchen yeah, with them?
0: No. Sus.
1: Yeah. That's the first thing you would think as a mother. Yeah. Like, thank God my kids weren't home. In a follow-up interview, Nanette lied and told the police that she and Bill had met in early 1991 while she was rollerblading on the boardwalk, and that they apparently had a friend in common who was also at the boardwalk. Why are you lying about
0: that? Why are you lying
1: about that? Yeah. Instead, so they even asked her. They were like, "Okay, so what was this friend's name?" And she was like, "I forget now." Hmm. Mm-hmm. Billy Bob. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, they they got pretty, pretty suspicious. There was also a point where she slipped up and she said, we left the soccer game, but she wasn't with her kids. So who is we? So oh, they be- they begin to tail Nanette at the beach house and they were shocked to find out who this we really was. Less than 48 hours after Bill's murder, the police watched a tall, muscular young man approach the beach house, kiss and embrace Nanette, and then warmly greet her children like hugging them in a very familiar fashion. (gasps) So who the fuck is this guy? And really, who is Nanette? Did you know that in the last year, rates of anxiety and depression have doubled in the U.S.? These days, it can take weeks to get a traditional therapy appointment. That's where Cerebral comes in.
0: Cerebral is an online mental health service that offers prescription medication, counseling, and therapy for anxiety, depression, ADHD, insomnia, and more.
1: Mental health is something that affects all of us, whether personally or someone who is close to us.
0: Yeah, thank goodness we're all talking about it more. It's really such an important issue.
1: Absolutely. And Cerebral is one of the few services that provides prescription medication online through a licensed provider and ships medication straight to your door, which means you can skip the pharmacy lines.
0: On top of that, the
1: service includes unlimited messaging with your care team. And did you know, Andy, that Simone Biles is their chief impact officer? She's obviously a huge advocate for mental health and reducing stigma around getting treatment.
0: Yep, it's pretty cool given how much choice she had. She felt Cerebral could offer her the best care that really understood what she was
1: going through. Totally. Andy, I'm excited to share that our listeners can receive 65% off their first month of medication management and care counseling at GetCerebral.com LoveMurder. Go to Cerebral.com LoveMurder for
0: 65% off your first month. That's just a total of $30 to get started.
1: Join Cerebral today on their mission to make quality mental health care accessible and affordable for all. Okay, Andy, we discuss a lot of gritty details on this podcast, but you know what's not talked about enough? Poop. Yes, that's P-O-O-P. Look at us shattering stigmas over here. Truth is, we could all probably be doing it better. Fact,
0: two out of three Americans live with digestive discomfort. Bloating,
1: prolonged fullness, and poop issues. Enter SEED. Andy, I am a huge gut health nerd. It's something we've spent a ton of time in our house learning about and something I think the whole world will learn a lot more about in the years to come. Absolutely.
0: And one thing that's super clear, not
1: all probiotics are created equal. SEED's daily synbiotic is a broad spectrum two-in-one probiotic plus prebiotic This supports benefits in and beyond the gut, including gastrointestinal function, skin health, heart health, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, and micronutrient synthesis of vitamins B9 and B12. Many see improvements in digestion within 24 to
0: 48 hours, which can include bowel movement regularity and ease bloating.
1: Start a new healthy habit today. Visit seed.com slash lovemurder and use the code lovemurder to redeem 20% off your first month of Seed's Daily Symbiotic. That's seed.com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder. Jesse, as we can all tell from your house, the holidays are here. (laughs) That's right. And this year, why not give yourself the gift of extra money in your pocket? Pay off your credit card balances and save with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. Roll your high-interest credit card payments into just one
0: payment at a lower fixed rate. Lightstream's credit card consolidation loans have rates as low as 4.98% APR, with auto pay and excellent credit.
1: There are no fees, and you can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience, and that's exactly what they deliver. Just for our listeners, apply now and get a special interest rate discount and save
0: even more. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash lovemurder. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M
1: dot com slash lovemurder. Subject to credit approval, rates range from 4.98% APR to 19.99% APR and include a 0.50% auto pay discount. Lowest rates require excellent credit. Terms and conditions apply, and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit Lightstream.com slash lovemurder for more information. It's the father of her child, obviously. You think so?
0: Yeah. Wow. And then and then she just like finds rich men. No, no,
1: no, no, no. Because remember, her kids are with their dad, remember?
0: But you said that they embraced he embraced the kids.
1: Yeah, but doesn't mean that her kids don't know her new boyfriend. Whoa. <laughs> look I just, how like, not can't. deceptive you are that you can't even think of that <laughs> andy's andy's like loyal brain was just blown up
0: <laughs> like it has to be the that it
1: has to be the x nope the kids were with the x whoa so let's let's talk about nanette Nanette Ann Manickshaw was born to parents A.D. and Marge, the first of four children in Chicago in 1965. While the kids were all still pretty young, Adie and Marge divorced. So Adie quickly remarried, and he moved to Maryland while well, Marge took the kids to Arizona. There, she married a man who allegedly physically abused the kids and may have sexually assaulted one of Nanette's sisters. So it's really hard to patch together Nanette's real history because she did not speak to Caitlin Rother for this book. Okay. But also she lies constantly. Okay. So all of the people who knew her, like even intimately, even people who are married to her, didn't truly know any of the facts of her real life because she was a compulsive liar. Yeah. Okay. And so they said though that they thought that maybe this one was actually true. That there was abuse from this particular stepfather because out of the four children, only one of them still spoke to Marge as adults. Okay. And the consensus was that they did not speak to their mother because she allowed the abuse to continue, basically. So, Nat, like I said, lied. She would say things like that she was valedictorian when it could be proven that she dropped out and got her GED. Okay. Okay. She also said, like she told Bill McLaughlin, that she had multiple advanced degrees from Arizona State University while there was no record of her attending even for undergraduate. Okay. She also randomly told people that she had gotten a basketball scholarship to Arizona State at some point when anyone who ever played a pickup game with her could tell that she was absolutely terrible. So that's a, a very weird lie to tell. I, I would never want to lie about being bad about a
0: sport because no, you can tell.
1: So I think that she told it because her son Christopher played sports pretty much year round. And so he was on a basketball team. And at some point she ended up being like a part-time coach on it, like a parent coach. Okay. And I think she told people that she had a basketball scholarship in order to like say she deserved to be coach because of that. But she was clearly bad at it. Weird. So yeah, there was a lot of lying about... What her situation was and what her early life was like. Okay. But one thing we do know for sure is that she met and married her first husband, Kay Ross Johnston. So his first name is Kevin, but he goes by Kay Ross. Okay. When she was only 18. Wow. On November 11th, 1983. So the two had worked at kind of like this gym spa place together. She like taught aerobics and he did something else. And they met and married very quickly. They were both at this point kind of religious. So I don't know if it was like a waiting for marriage type thing. And that's okay. why they got married so fast. But or they got- them
0: both lying about waiting for marriage.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing <laughs> Nanette, I don't know. She yep. could be lying about anything. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, they fell in love. They got married really fast. They were both really young. Okay. And they worked in various sales jobs. They both started working at an electronic store and they moved into selling timeshares at some point. They expanded their family with baby Christopher in 1985 and little girl Lachelle in 1987. The photos show a petite, pretty brunette with short, dark hair who looked like a young, innocent teenager in love around the time she married Kay Ross and had the kids. There's like a cute photo in the book. I'll see if I can put it on the Instagram where she's like in a pool with her two really little kids. Yeah. And she just looks so young and like natural and happy. Just like a beautiful young mother. Okay. But soon Kay Ross said that she changed. She went from like this kind of like modest, happy, young mother into wanting more materially. Obviously, they're both young. They're both like trying to make ends meet. And she just wanted like fancier clothes. She wanted fancier cars. She For wanted what? a bigger house, you know. And he was having a hard time keeping up with her demands. And she also changed her appearance at that point. Like like I said, her, her looks at that point were like short, dark hair, almost like a, kind of has like a Jamie Lee Curtis thing going Cute. on. Okay. Yeah. But then- she grew out her hair, dyed it blonde, and she went from wearing like mostly like modest like mom outfits to skin type mini skirts and okay. dresses. So he's like, Whoa, this is a change. Like, all yeah. of a sudden, you want all the stuff, you are dressing completely different. And yeah. you know, she had a great body, and you know, he loved his wife. So he's like, Fine, cool. But it became who's it for? Yeah, exactly. It became a problem when she decided she couldn't get what she wanted from K Ross. So she was going to get it from some other men. So K Ross's first tip off that she was cheating was so insane. He was walking down the street and saw his wife's business card on the hood of a luxury BMW like convertible. That is so wild. So, you no, know, it gets more. He walked over and there was a note on her business card that said, you caught my eye. If you're not married, meet me at this club tonight. And she like wrote Nanette. So yeah. Did he go to the club? No, no, no. He brought the card home to her and confronted her. it on the club. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I'm sure he's like, she thought he was, she was going to leave him with the kids, you know, it's crazy. So yeah, th- that was like the first indication. But the final straw came was that she came home with a BMW herself one day and she said that it was like from some bonus or something at work or part-time sales job, something. Yeah. And when it got repossessed, her husband was like, what, why is your car getting repossessed? What happened? And he found out through the guy who was repossessing it that it was an affair partner who had bought her the car. And after he found her cheating with a third guy, not her husband, he repossessed the car. So Kay Ross was like, "Okay, we can't even work through this." Like I knew you were having a couple affairs. You said you were going to having affairs
0: on affairs on affairs affairs
1: on affairs on affairs. So Your he was like, getting repoed. "I'm I'm out." So he filed for divorce in February of 1989, just shy of their fifth anniversary. Sad. Yeah, he got custody of the kids, and he moved to California in September of 1989 because they were in Arizona before. Okay. That same year, she was arrested for writing bad checks. Which I feel like, obviously, you guys have an inkling that she might be our, you know, baddie in this episode. For some reason, all of these liars always start off with writing bad checks. They
0: love a bad check. I feel like their bad checks are like dipping a toe
1: in the water. Yeah, just to see what they can get away with. Yeah. And then it's more and more and more. So anyways, he moves to California. At some point, you know, she's writing these bad checks. She's getting in trouble. She was arrested. And then she tells him, I was totally wrong. I made a huge mistake. I want to reconcile with you. Obviously. yep." So he's like, move to California. We can be a family. Let's do this. He's willing to give her a shot. And lo and behold, she starts cheating on him. Immediately. I mean, he, he said that she was—they barely were reconciled for, like, a month when a boyfriend showed up at his door being like, hey, where's my girlfriend? Yeah,
0: she doesn't have any intention of actually reconciling. No.
1: So she ended up staying in California so she could be near the kids. So okay. this, they're now in Orange County. And she ended up moving on to a tall, handsome bouncer named Tom Reynolds. And she—man, she duped this guy. So I don't know if there was a guy between— the guy who showed up on K Ross's doorstep must have been this guy, but apparently she had been kicked out of whoever she was staying with in this interim because she went to a club. She met Tom Reynolds. He was like a super handsome guy who was working security. And basically she totally flirted with him all night, was like, let's get a drink when you're out. And he took her home for a one night stand and she basically just moved in what? Yeah. Like he brought her home and then, you know, she kept being sexual with him and, she, and he's like, okay, stay another night. She's like, all right. And then like by the end of a couple of weeks, she was like, oh, this is silly. Why don't I just move in? He didn't realize that she didn't actually have a place to live. So she just sexed her way into That's amazing. an apartment, essentially. Whoa. <laughs> so they get into a relationship and he he wasn't a super wealthy guy, but apparently he was a really good gambler. Okay. So they started going to Las Vegas together, and they were always VIP because he would spend a lot of money but win a lot of money.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah,
1: so yeah. They but they had, just
0: care if you spend a lot of money.
1: Yeah, they don't care. You're yeah. spending a lot of money. But apparently— He counted on Nanette to transfer funds to him. There wasn't, obviously, you didn't have, like, an app on your phone that you could, like, transfer money easily. So sometimes he'd stay playing in Las Vegas and he would, like, be like, hey, Nanette, can you go to my bank and transfer these funds for me? Or, like, take the actual cash winnings and deposit them in my account. Okay. You know, when you go back to California. And she ended up stealing from him or racking up credit card debt into the $100,000 range. shit, And they were only together for a few months. So in January 1991, the final straw came for Tom Reynolds when he discovered that not only had she been taking all of his money, he also discovered that she was advertising herself in something called The Singles Connection, which, like I said, was described as the auto trader for sex. So he finds this, like, under her bed or something. Like she had tried to hide it, but she had a copy of the magazine. But she also
0: had sent the photo to someone to paint a portrait of it. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yes, he came in here. He burst into the room and Leonardo DiCaprio was painting her. No, but yeah, so he finds the singles ad that she has put up. And he's like, what the fuck? You're living with me and you're advertising for wealthy men? Are you insane? And she didn't even feel bad about it. Like, she didn't say anything like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry or anything. She was like, you are so stupid. You didn't even know what was going on. Why would I even stay with somebody who can't even tell that I'm cheating on them? That was her reaction. She's, like, gaslighting the fuck out of him. Yeah, (laughs) she's like, wow, you're a dummy. I don't want to be with you anyways. You just found out. Ugh, I already have a fucking house. You're so smart. Yeah, she she basically said to him, she's like, I already have another apartment lined up. I don't need you. Bye. So he was pissed, obviously. And then in a classic move, she tried to steal a bunch of his shit as she was moving out. And when he intervened, first of all, the first thing she did was like he was trying to get her to not take his TV. And he was like, I'm going to call the police and I'm going to tell them that you're stealing my TV. And she threw it on the ground and smashed it in the driveway. And then there was other things. So that it must she, have not been that big if she threw it on the ground. Well, she just kind of dropped it. It was one of those big ones. <laughs> just dropped it like screen side first onto the pavement. And then when they got into uh, another fight about what she was taking, she like beat herself up, called the cops, and was like, he beat me. That's and she was arrested. So fucked. I hate that. I know. So yeah, so around this time was when she met Bill.
0: Whoa. So her life was this Buck Wild when yes. she met Bill.
1: Yeah, this was—she might have been—I don't know who she was living with or if she was living by herself for a little while because it. she met—this was—that altercation happened in January of 1991, and she met Bill in 1991, January of 1991. So she Whoa. met him around this exact same time. Whoa. So obviously the relationship with Bill progressed. And during, you know, 1994, she was trying to get Bill to reverse his vasectomy and she was also telling everyone that they were engaged. But while she was doing that, she was also slipping the ring off of her finger when she went to the gym so she could engage in several affairs with hot-bodied young men. Hot-bodied young gym men. Exactly. Gym rats. <laughs> so none of these sexcapades amounted to much until she met former NFL player Eric Naposki, and the two began dating at the beginning of 1994.
0: Well, dating, but she's with someone else. Yes. So just, like, sleeping together, yeah, having
1: an affair. So Eric Naposki was the muscled man that the cops spotted with Nanette two days after Bill's murder. (whistles) Eric had moved to Orange County after a failed marriage and a lackluster pro-sports career... He was born in 1966, so he's, like, just a a little more than a year younger than Nanette and, of course, nearly 30 years younger than her fiancé. Yeah. He grew up in the Bronx and Tuckahoe, New York, with his single mother, Ronnie, and later a stepfather who adopted him. We stopped in Tuckahoe on the way up here. I know. It's always so funny.
0: Tuckahoe. It's, we, that was where we, like, pulled off the exit, and Dan was like, I wonder how many times they have to change, because teens probably write an F at the beginning. (laughs) And he was like, I bet they're changing because yeah. it was spray painted out the tea. And really? he was like, Yeah,
1: and he it, at the exit. And he was like, I bet they have to do that like every month. I really I bet they do. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. It's so true. So yeah, so that's where he predominantly grew up. And then he had a stepfather who later adopted him. Eric was very gifted athletically, and he grew into an absolutely huge guy. He was like, built like a fridge. He stood 6'2 and he was about 240 pounds for most of his career. At some point, I think he got up to 260. Eric had dark hair and dark eyes ringed with a fringe of dark lashes that made him look like he was wearing mascara. You'll see these like, he's got like somewhat of a baby face. Even when he's older, later on, his eyes are still like, his eyelashes are really insane. So yeah. he has like his big baby eyes. In high school, he became a talented linebacker who was considered easygoing and popular People said, though, that his relaxed temperament did change when he got a football scholarship to college and he began to use steroids.
0: Oh, steroids will do that.
1: Yeah. So he had once been more of like an even keel gentle giant. And then he developed a scary rage and a temperamental attitude. Matters were not helped when during Eric's sophomore year, he got his high school girlfriend pregnant. So the young couple did get married in November of 1985, but there was a lot of tension in the relationship because he was a scholarship student and they, I guess they had a rule that scholarship students cannot have outside jobs to make money. Yeah. But what if you have a kid? Exactly. And that was the problem. And that was what his wife was having a problem with. Like, so he wanted to continue college and his, you know, sports career at college but she needed money for the kid. And they both needed
0: money for the kid. They
1: both needed yeah. money for the kid. So essentially he became really like angry and he was very resentful of the whole college situation. And he started fighting all the time with his coach until his coach was like, I'm just going to bench you because you're a piece of shit. And then, of course, when he wasn't playing, he's like, why am I even doing this? So he quit school and the football team. Okay. After the birth of his daughter, Eric worked as a personal trainer and also enrolled in the Army Reserves and ROTC program where he received weapons training. In 1988, he wanted desperately to get back to playing football, so he actually snuck onto the field during a New England Patriots tryout and miraculously made the team. That's incredible. That is wild. Yeah, that's like I love one of Spielberg. Yeah. I love those stories where yeah. people are like, I'm just going to do it.
0: Fake it till you make it. Exactly.
1: However, his <laughs> NFL career was <laughs> wah, wah. pretty much a flop. I wish that this was more of a success story, guys. I wish that Andy and I just told stories of scrappy people making it work. But we do not. We tell you stories of them. awful, awful human beings doing terrible things to other people. Because that's what you love. Because that's what you love. So it's your problem. <laughs> you sickos. We love you. You cute sickos. You adorable sickos. So he was not very good. Out of the 16-game season, he only played three games. He was released from his contract after only a year. If you guys know more about football and I'm saying something wrong, I will never learn. Don't at me. I swear, I will never know anything about football. (laughs) But yeah, so basically he bounced around then. A couple other teams picked him up and then immediately dropped him. He went to the Colts, the Cowboys, and the Jets. But like out of all three of those teams, I think he only played two games collectively.
0: Oh, God. But like still got paid.
1: He got paid, yes. He also kept getting injured. So it wasn't that he was just like bad. It was just that he kept for some reason getting injured. So there was that. And then- I think also he wasn't super duper good. Well,
0: if you're doing steroids too, your body doesn't necessarily.
1: Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, they test you in the NFL though. So I don't know if he was doing steroids at this time. He was in college, but they didn't say whether he was doing it at this point. So yeah, after a a very not good NFL career, he ended up moving to Barcelona and playing in the short-lived World League. And this is actually where he really shined. Barcelona loved him. He was actually great playing in this, like, world league of football. Okay. And, like, little kids would shout his name while he was on the field, and he did great here. So while his star was rising professionally, it was cratering personally. His wife filed for divorce in March of 1991 in Connecticut. At the time, the couple had a 5-year-old, which was their first child, Mm -hmm. and an 18-month-old little girl as well. Okay. Okay. So he tried to get back into the NFL after a successful few seasons with the Barcelona team, but that also failed. And he ended up moving to Orange County in January of 1993 to work as a bouncer and do private security. And his kids are in Connecticut? And his kids are in Connecticut. (laughs) When Eric Napowski met Nanette at the gym sometime in 1993, he was young and handsome, but totally penniless. Not only was he broke, but he also owed his ex thousands of dollars in child support. He didn't pay a thing. Wow, that's so fucked up. In January of 1994, the relationship went from fun, flirty, and friendly to something more serious. Nanette introduced Eric to her kids, and he became a mainstay at Christopher's sporting events. The other parents recognized him as Nanette's boyfriend yikes so bill wasn't going to these games apparently as no because bill's actually working yeah (laughs) yeah (sighs) and so eric's like going to the games and basically everyone thought he was nanette's serious boyfriend nanette would later try to say that the two only had a casual sex type relationship But that just didn't make sense with everything we know about the couple. Every other weekend, Bill went to Vegas for work and Nett would spend every waking moment with her lover. She brought Eric to meet her family. She brought him to her sister's wedding. What? Well, she's with Bill. And she brought him to her sister's wedding and apparently she caught the bouquet and he caught the garter. And they did the whole, like, he put the garter on her thing in front of the whole wedding. Oh, my God. Yep. She took him to a family reunion. Eric, in turn, introduced her to his family on an East Coast trip where the two flew into New York City. Oh, my God. She also treated Eric to a Jamaican cruise on Bill's dime, telling Bill that she was taking her grandmother.
0: Oh. A girlfriend, just her grandmother.
1: Her, she, said, she needs this trip, you know, it'd be so nice for her. It's her like dying wish to have a nice trip with me. And she takes her six foot two, 240 pound ex NFL lover. Wow. In the summer and the fall of 94, while Nanette was touring really fancy mansions with Bill, she was also looking at houses with Eric. These more in the $900,000. Oh, yeah, casual. Hmm, though. This guy has no money. And he owes his ex wife thousands and thousands of dollars. Not good. She also is not working at this point. She said to people that she gave up her sales career because Bill wanted her home. Career. Yeah. It's, I mean, I don't even know if she was actually working when she met him. I think you, when you first
0: said it, you said sometimes sales.
1: Yes. It was what she told him at least. Yeah. So she told people that she had to quit her job to be with Bill. So she's not working. This guy has no money. So what are they doing looking at $900,000 houses? There's like a 2020 later and she's like, I just, you know, ever since I was young, I just like looking at real estate. I don't know what that, like, the, she was trying to say, like, it wasn't, like, anything about her planning a life with this guy that she just loved randomly looking at I, real estate. I, too,
0: love looking at houses on the weekend with <laughs> a bunch of other people who are also competitively chasing that house. <laughs> yeah, fuck. Come on.
1: So, yeah. I mean, at this point, you would think that Eric had to know he was the other guy, right? Like, yeah. he can't see his girlfriend yeah. most of the week. But No. He did know about Bill, but Nanette told him that Bill was a mentor and a business partner to her.
0: For her sometimes sales jobs.
1: Yes, that he cut her in on special investments and he was like teaching her how to, I don't know, be a business person apparently. Wow. And that he was like a father to her. And that he knew that she was, you know, having a hard time whenever they had moved in. And he had this big empty house. And so he let her live with him and her kids to give them a nice place to live. And he was like in Vegas most of the time anyway. So that's what she tells him. Wow. Oh, and he, he believed it. He absolutely, everyone said later on that they believe he absolutely believed this line. Okay. Okay. So during the summer of 1994, Eric befriended a woman named Suzanne Kogar who lived in his apartment complex in Tustin, California. Suzanne noticed that she saw Nanette with Eric and her kids at the pool every other weekend. So this was like an apartment complex that had a pool yeah. and a hot tub. And most of the people who lived here were pretty young. Okay. So they got to know each other because everyone would just like hang out at the pool, yeah. you know, and become Barbecue, friends. whatever. Yeah. Exactly. So he, whenever he was with this woman and she had a, um, like a ground floor apartment that she could see the pool. Yep. So she would see them from her house and he never like brought it up and he kind of had a thing for her a little bit too. I guess they like made out one time. Okay. She's like, what's up with your girlfriend? And he was just kind of like weird about it. He's like, oh, you know, we don't see each other all the time. Like we're trying to figure things out, like whether we're totally on or we're not, you know? But eventually that changed. Uh, like, So the first time she asked him was like in the summer. Okay. By November of 1994, he did confess to Suzanne that he was in love with Nanette. Okay. And that he wanted to marry her. But he also said that she lived with her older male business partner. Okay. And at that point, Suzanne was like, Okay, you have to realize she's lying to you. Oh, shit. She yeah, she knew. was like, she is feeding you a line of bull, dude. No woman just, like, lives with a random rich guy without- Also, with a business partner, like,
0: yeah, shit where you eat. Or whatever it
1: is, right? No, and also she's like 29, I think, at this point. He's 55. no, no. She was like, there's no way that they don't have some arrangement. Yeah. You're crazy if you think otherwise. And he's like, well, there was something that happened and it super pissed me off and I'm trying to figure out what to do about it. And so he was really angry and he told Suzanne that the business partner had come into Nanette's room and- tried to force himself upon her.
0: Mm -hmm. You mean the room that they share because they're a couple?
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So he said basically like that he was so angry about this and that he thought that this guy needed to be taught a lesson. Yes. So this is an account in Caitlin Rother's book, I'll Take Care of You. He said that Bill had his own private jet, which he often flew to Las Vegas and he was planning to go there over Christmas. I'm going to have him killed, Eric said, blown away. I'm going to have his plane blown up. Blow his plane up? That's crazy, she said. What are you talking about? I know how I would have that done, he said. Eric sounded so serious that he scared her. That's not something you go around saying to people, that you want to have somebody's plane blown up, she said. But Eric didn't seem to be paying attention to what she was saying, and Kogar lost all interest in continuing the conversation... And their friendship. Yeah, wouldn't you? Uh, yeah. He's a psycho, clearly. So Suzanne left for the Christmas holiday, and when she returned, Eric had moved out and into Bill's beach house with Nanette. Stop it. Uh Uh-huh. So the cops obviously had picked up Eric during their surveillance of Nanette. Like, they didn't pick him up at that time. Could you imagine, like, being a cop, and then you, like, follow
0: the wife home, and then there's some... Like, huge. Within two days of the murder. Yeah, no, it's crazy.
1: They weren't getting just that. They also got reports from a couple other people about Nanette having a boyfriend from others. Bill's brother called the police after Nanette's son, Christopher, told him that his mommy's boyfriend was an NFL player. (sighs) At Bill's funeral. With HelloFresh, you get fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on
0: HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal
1: kit. The holidays can be hectic, but HelloFresh keeps things simple with recipes that cut back on meal prep and cleanup so you can spend less time in the kitchen and more quality time with friends and family.
0: HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items to choose from every week, including vegetarian, calorie smart, and gourmet options, providing plenty of variety.
1: Ingredients travel from the farm to your door within a week, so you get the convenience without skimping on the quality. Plus, skip trips to the grocery store and avoid the long holiday lines. HelloFresh meals are ready in
0: about 30 minutes or less. Plus, with their quick and easy meals, 20-minute recipes, for low prep and easy cleanup options, you can get the food on the table quicker so that you can spend more holiday time with loved ones. Recipes like
1: balsamic and fig beef tenderloin or pecan crusted salmon make holiday meals feel special without the high cost of dining out or delivery, or go for a cozy comfort food choice like chicken sausage and sweet potato soup for a cold winter night.
0: Jesse, I love that your refrigerator is absolutely stocked with HelloFresh meals. It's Going to make our visit so stress-free and keep us healthy at the same time.
1: Absolutely. Especially around the holidays, it's so important to have convenient, healthy alternatives to take-out or time-consuming meal planning and prep. Go to HelloFresh.com LoveMurder14
0: and use code LoveMurder14 for up to 14 free meals and three free gifts. That's HelloFresh.com LoveMurder14 and use code LoveMurder14 for up to 14 free meals and three free gifts. When it comes to true crime podcasts, Generation Y is a pioneer. If you're obsessed with
1: crime mysteries and unsolved murder cases, this show has it all. Hosts Aaron and Justin cover cases from all angles. They break down theories, dive deep into forensic evidence, and discuss their opinions on the most perplexing of cases. In
0: one recent episode, you'll hear the unusual case of Michelle Nyrider. In 2017, in Corning, New York, Sergeant John McDivitt conducted a welfare check at Nyrider's
1: house. Through the glass of the front door, he could see the silhouette of a woman and knew something terrible had happened. Inside the home, he found Nyrider dead. At first glance, it was easy to assume that she had taken her own life. But when it became clear that this wasn't an open-and-shut case, the first person suspected was Nyrider's ex-husband. Though he seemed to have an alibi, some questions remained, and this whodunit case takes some highly unexpected turns.
0: Jesse, I think it's fair to say at this point we're connoisseurs of the true crime genre, and that's why I can confidently say that I think you all will love this podcast.
1: Yeah, I mean, they are a mainstay and a legend in this industry for a reason. They're really, really good. Listen to the Generation Y podcast on
0: Apple Podcasts amazon music or you can listen ad free by joining wandery plus
1: in the wandery app
0: oh my god oh my god it's not funny
1: it's not funny because this little kid is like my mommy's boyfriend is an nfl player well he's burying his brother who he thought was this woman's fiance so yeah Also, Nanette's ex, Kay Ross, had been interviewed by the police, and he revealed that Nanette had called him the day after the murder and asked him to not tell the police about Eric in general, but especially not to tell them that he had been at Christopher's game that day. Luckily for the police, Eric had an outstanding warrant for failure to appear on a traffic violation. Of course he did. Of course. So they had a legal excuse to pull him over and bring him into question. yep. In a search of the car, they found a notebook that outlined Eric's plan to buy Nanette a $2,500 engagement ring. With what money, brah? You have kids to take care of. Yes, send it to your kids, thank you very much. And much more incriminating than that, in the notebook, he had written down Bill's license plate. I was going to say, what, floor plans of the kitchen? like. (laughs) (laughs) So Eric totally changed his story about the nature of his relationship with Nanette throughout the interview. First, he said they were just friends. Then he admitted they were in a casual relationship. But by the end of the interview, he said that she was somebody he could see himself marrying someday. Okay. He claimed he didn't know Bill and had never been to the Balboa Cove's house. He said that he and Nanette had been at a soccer game together that night, but then they left hurriedly because he thought he had an early meeting at work at 8 p.m. at the Thunderbird nightclub, which is where he worked as a bouncer. Okay. Okay. Now, the game went into double overtime and didn't end until past eight. So at this point, K. Ross was like, why are you guys even leaving? He's obviously missed his meeting. And now we had double overtime and you're missing the trophy ceremony. Yeah. Like, it's like over now. Just stay. And they were like, no, no, no. We have to go. So they left sometime around 8.20. And K. Ross decided to take the kids home with him, obviously. Yeah. So Eric said that Annette dropped him off at his place in Tustin, and then she went on to go to the mall, which we know she did because of her receipts. I go to the mall at 8.20 p.m. as well. He said that he changed clothes, drove by a friend's house, but didn't stop because the lights were out at his house. Then he received a page from work, and he stopped at a Denny's to call the club. And he said that this was like on a payphone around eight fifty ish before arriving at the club sometime before like nine thirty ish. Okay, N- nobody knows. Like he said, he was there at like around nine ish. Other people were like, I guess maybe I don't really remember seeing him until like nine thirty ish. So okay. somewhere between nine and nine thirty, he arrived at work. Okay, and Kevin called nine and one at nine eleven. Oh, yeah, important detail. Yes. Eric was combative and he was rude in the interrogation. The only time he displayed any surprise or vulnerability was when the police revealed that Nanette had actually been engaged to Bill. That she was most certainly not his mentee or business partner and definitely not like a daughter to him. Mentee. Investigators said that he seemed genuinely shocked and was still kind of like, no, I think you guys got it wrong. Like he was trying to convince them that they had it wrong about their relationship. Oh. So they asked him about firearms that he owned, and he listed off a bunch and then Ugh. chatted about where they were. But right at the end of the interview, after a long time had passed since they'd been talking about the firearms, he's like, oh, yeah, I also, uh, you know, a little while ago, I got a Beretta, but I don't know where that is. And they're like, huh, because a Beretta is exactly the type of 9 millimeter we think was used in the commission of this murder. And so he ends up lying about this Beretta over and over again. Like, pull out the Beretta. Everyone actually wants you to sing more, so I'm really glad you did. you know where that's from? No. R. Kelly's Out of the Closet. Ugh, you sang R. Kelly on another song, (laughs) and I think people liked it, so I'm glad you brought it back. But he's a terrible person, and I'm glad I never liked his music. (laughs) I pulled out the Beretta. (laughs) That's
0: what he says.
1: (laughs) Okay, so yeah. So first he says... I sold it to a friend or I gave it to a friend. That mm-hmm. friend's like, no, he gave me a 380 and like tried to convince the guy to say that like the gun had been stolen from him. And the friend was like, no, you'd never gave me a eye. You gave me a 380 and also it wasn't stolen. I'm not going to say that. And then he tried to say that he sent it to his father because his father needed protection for some reason. And his father was like, no, I don't have this gun. So they kept... Figuring out that he was lying, obviously. And then finally, when he had no more lies left inside him, he's like, I don't know. And they're like, that's the best you can do? I don't know. And he's like, yeah, I don't know where that gun is. I don't know. So obviously he's guilty. I mean, they're like, clearly this guy is guilty. So they also interviewed Nanette again, now that they have her confirmed affair partner. And she did cop to a sexual relationship with Eric. She told the police that she and Bill had a discreet open relationship where they were both able to do what they wanted as long as they didn't embarrass one another. It's easy to speak for the victim when they're dead. Exactly. Bill's friends and family were like, okay, that is total bullshit. He was completely monogamous. And also, if he had found out that his much younger fiancé-slash-girlfriend— who he was really paying all of this money for, was cheating on him, he would have thrown her out on her ass. Everybody said this. He would not have tolerated this behavior. So this was a lie. Soon it became very apparent, though, that infidelity wasn't the only naughty thing that Nanette was up to. It seems like $1 million life insurance policy, a $150,000 provision in Bill's will— the infinity car that she got to keep and the beach house that she was living in, he had put a provision in his will that she got to live there for a year rent-free. Okay. So
0: all of that- While he was alive?
1: No, after he died. Oh. So he basically said in the will, like, if I die, she's not cast out into the streets. She gets to live in the beach house for a year rent-free after my death. Okay. So all of this was not good enough for Nanette because- she had been embezzling from Bill for months. Bill's daughters had discovered the theft when they went through his bank accounts after the murder. Yeah. And they saw that Nanette had written herself a $250,000 check the day before Bill died and cashed it in four days after his murder. So Nanette had started by stealing a few thousand dollars here and there by writing checks to herself. Yeah.
0: Because she loves that.
1: Yep. Back in February, which was coincidentally the same time that she started getting serious with Eric, and the amounts had gradually grown. Eventually, it could be proven that Nanette forged Bill's signature on several checks totaling just over $500,000. Okay. I would have thought it would have been more. No, but that's only the ones they could definitively prove. There are some that she could argue, her attorneys could argue, were for household items or things that he had given her permission to buy. Okay. That she had some proof that there was some reason for this check being in her account. Okay, So I think she probably stole a lot more than that. She was certainly spending a lot more money than that. Like she was still using his credit cards after his death. She bought three motorcycles for Eric for Christmas. Oh my God. Yep. So that's just the $500,000 is just the stuff that she had embezzled that they could clearly say that this was for no other reason other than to you to steal forging his signature. And I guess some of the signatures, too, were sketchy about, like, was this his signature or not? Those were only the ones that they could prove. So Nanette was arrested for grand theft and forgery in April of 1995. Desperate to get his lover out of jail, Eric even begged his parents to put up their house as collateral for Nanette's bail. Wow. Yeah, and actually one of Bill's daughters heard that this was happening and she called Eric's mother, Bill's daughter, and was like, Nanette is a con woman. And now she's conning your son. Do not put your house up for collateral because if she jumps bail and this woman will, you will lose your house for no reason. Yeah, good. Yeah. And this poor mother, Ronnie, was just like, I mean, I met her once and she seemed nice. Now I don't know what to do. And they were like, do not put your house up. So yeah, he did not. Somehow she did eventually get bail. I think that they reduced it so she was able to pay at some point. So she's out for a little while, but she does ultimately go to jail for this. Okay. While she's in custody and while she's out on bail, they are doing everything they can to, you know, find more incriminating evidence and also maybe get her to talk, right? But it's just not happening. They're not finding any evidence that's considered a smoking gun. So one new piece of evidence was that the owner of an Ace Hardware store in Eric's neighborhood, literally like the next street over, positively identified Eric as a man who had come into the store and requested a copy of a key... Shortly before the murder. So they have that. Oh, God. So that's new evidence. But in general, beyond that, they have no murder weapon. They can't find Eric Beretta. So they know he's being sketchy about it, but yeah. they can't prove anything. Yep. They have no real forensic evidence tying Eric to the shooting, and they have no eyewitnesses. So everything is largely circumstantial. Yep. Nanette was briefly out of jail after making bail, like I said. And during that time, it seemed like her relationship with Eric petered out. Okay. So around that time, Eric paid a visit to Suzanne Kogar to tell her that the relationship was over. Now, this was the second visit that Eric had made to her. She later told authorities, and later, much later. So this is not happening in this time frame. Okay. Okay that Eric had first stopped by only a few weeks after the murder when she didn't even know that Bill was dead or who Bill was. Okay, And he stopped by to ask specifically if anyone had come by from the police to interview her.
0: Never a good sign.
1: No. So she said no, of course. And he's like, well, if they do, pretend you don't know me. Oh. And then when she asked what it was about, he said, well, remember that guy that was, you know, my girlfriend's business partner and I wanted him killed? Well, he died. He was murdered. And she was like, oh, shit, okay. Um, Well, I mean, did you have anything to do with that after the threats you made?
0: I would be so scared to ask a huge-ass football player if he had
1: anything to do with a murder. And he said, I didn't do it, but maybe I know who did. And then she was like, I actually don't want to know. She was like, I really don't want to know. Don't tell me anything more. And he goes, well, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. And he was smirking about it. He also told Suzanne, now this is only a couple weeks after the murder, like why he was worried that people were setting him up. He's like, I'm worried I'm getting set up because the police found a key at the scene that had been copied at his local Ace Hardware store. And he also said that it turned out that the murder weapon actually was the same weapon as a missing Beretta he had once
0: owned. Uh, yeah, what's the quinky dink there?
1: Yeah, so the crazy thing about this was that these were details that had not been released to the public. Okay. So no one would know this except for the killer. And in fact, at this exact time, the police had not actually talked to the Ace Hardware store owner about identifying Eric. It was before. It was before. So now, of course, Suzanne doesn't know this. She didn't even know that this guy was uh, dead. Later in May, as his relationship failed, he ended up coming to see Suzanne again, which now she's terrified, of course. She's now figured out that he might have killed this guy. And he told her that he was leaving Nanette, though the relationship wasn't 100% over. And she remembers thinking, oh, my God, this guy killed this woman's boyfriend, and now he's just breaking up with her or she's breaking up with him? Like, for what? She, he killed this guy for nothing? Yeah, That's what she was thinking in the back of her head. And so he says, now, I'm, I'm leaving to go to Canada where I'm going to play in a football league there. Uh-huh. So he's going to go play in the CFL. So she waited until she knew he was confirmed in Canada. Okay. And then she called the Newport PD to report what she knew. But it took a lot to work up the courage because she was yeah. convinced that he was going to find out and kill her. Yeah. So this woman answers and she's like, there's no detectives available to speak with you right now. And Suzanne is like, well, can you just take in my statement? Because I don't think I'm going to have the courage to call again. And I guess the woman was like a receptionist. And she's like, I actually can't. That's not my jurisdiction. Like, you have to. Can you just call back in an hour? Somebody will be at their desk in an hour. Just call back then. And Suzanne never called back. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. So she she lost her nerve that specific time. However, later, according to I'll take care of you, Three years later, in March of 1998, Kogar was living with a different apartment with a roommate, and apparently they got nearly 20 hang-up calls in one month. So the two women were racking their minds to think, okay, who could be pranking us or calling us or threatening us? Whoa. And it came up in her mind that it could be this guy, Eric. She was like, maybe he's checking up on me. So... I don't. We don't know if it was Eric or not, but either way, it brought up in her mind, wow, you've never dealt with this. You never called back. You could have maybe helped solve a murder case and you didn't. And she just decided that she couldn't live with suppressing that anymore. So she decided to call the police again three years after the murder. This time, she did reach a detective, a guy named Tom Fishbacker. And as she recounted her story, he apparently took an edgy tone with her as if to say, why should we believe you? So she was like, I'm sorry. I was just scared. Like, he was kind of like, why are you coming now? Yeah. Like, you know. And she was like, I was scared and I didn't know what to do and I'm trying to do the right thing now. And he basically, like, she's like, if I come forward, can you offer me protection? He was like, no. Oh. So she basically, like, set up an appointment to talk to this guy at the station. And then she decided to cancel it because she's like, what? He's being rude to me. Yeah, and he's no. told me that, that he can't protect me. No. So about five days after she canceled the appointment, a sergeant called her to apologize for the detective's behavior and asked her if she would meet with him instead. And so he's like, just tell me what's going on and then we'll see if it's worth you coming down. And So she elaborated on the story. And she did say that this sergeant was like a lot easier to talk to, but she told him she wanted to remain anonymous. And at the end of the day, he said, you know, I think the information is important that you have, but I don't think it's enough to make an arrest. Oh, my God. So don't worry about it. And so she was like, "Okay, well, I guess, you know, I did my part. I shared my story. That was the best I could do. You know, if they're not going to follow up on it, they're not going to follow up on it. Wow. Yeah. So Net went to jail for 180 days for the fraud charges, and Eric went to Canada to play nothing. football. 180 nothing. days. Nothing. nothing. And the case went completely cold. Yep. Bill's family was devastated. They felt like, of course they knew exactly who had committed this murder. And they were getting off scot-free. I mean, they were. That's so fucked up. So the McLaughlin's pain was compounded. By another tragic event, when seven years after the murder, Kevin drowned one night while swimming in the ocean. His sister theorized that he had gone out deep, he loved to swim, and that he must have, like, a wave hit him over the head or something. And because of the scar tissue in yeah. his throat, because of the tracheotomy, it was hard for him to cough it up or get it out, yeah. and he ended up drowning. Yeah. It was really, really hard on the family. They had suffered so much loss and they had zero justice. And, you know, Kevin had borne the weight of seeing his father like that. And now he was gone as well. Yeah. Meanwhile, our murderers are just living their... Best, most dysfunctional relationship life out there. Playing CFL. Yep. After Canada, Eric went back to Barcelona for a couple years before retiring, despite still owing his ex-wife $75,000 in Jessie. back child support. Jesse. $75,000, Andrea. He still somehow conned another young woman into marrying him. What? The couple had two more children, but... Unsurprisingly, his second wife did not fare much better than the first. After Eric shattered the woman's car windshield in a fight, she did briefly get a restraining order and ultimately divorced Eric. By now, he was living in Connecticut and working part-time as a personal trainer.
0: So back near his kid, his initial kids.
1: Back near his initial kids. Wow. But yeah, unsurprisingly, again, he also didn't pay a dime of child support to his second wife.
0: Don't you have to like feel like you would be court-ordered to pay that shit. So
1: here's the thing. He was. So they were trying to garnish his wages, of course. But he also had several bench warrants issued against him for like $5,000 bonds for failing to appear at court hearings about the child support. Wow. So yeah, somehow during all of this, he also still manages to convince yet another woman, a nice school teacher named Rosie, to marry him. (laughs) What? Yes, poor Rosie. Oh, my God. Yeah, and the engaged couple moved in together in the spring of 2009. Holy shit. Yeah. So that's 15 years after he murdered this guy. Oh, my
0: God.
1: So going back to Nanette, she managed to hook another older rich guy when she was only four months out of jail in 1997. Oh, my God. That's raw. By using her old tried-and-true method, the personal ads. Man, this broad would have loved some online dating, huh? Huge. Would have killed it. Oh. Yes, but you're right. Correct. So this guy was 15 years older than her and a successful real estate developer named John Packard. The couple was engaged only six months after meeting, and they got married on Valentine's Day roughly 10 months after they had met. Wow. Love murder, red flag all over. So Nanette gave birth to a beautiful baby girl named J.C. in March of 2000. Also, if you guys watch the 2020, her daughters Lachelle and J.C. are on it. And they are so beautiful. Really? Just gorgeous. Way, way prettier than Nanette ever was. Like she has two beautiful daughters who are suffering greatly because of
0: all of this. Yeah, yeah, we'll get
1: into it later, but I just mentioned JC and they just were like really like two really like beautiful young women. Yeah, it's sad. I mean, it'd be sad if they weren't beautiful. They just happen to be beautiful. <laughs> it's always sad. <laughs> so she's born in March of 2000, but history repeated itself when Nanette began to step out on her older wealthy husband for a younger model. She met Billy McNeil in 2002 She was, I think, around 37 years old, and he was six years younger. So he's around 31. He was a finance guy for Pepsi, and he was in his final year of his MBA when he met Nanette. He, like she, was also married. The two got hot and heavy pretty quick, and Billy separated from his wife only one month after meeting Nanette. Shut the
0: fuck up. She had some magic pussy shit.
1: She really, really did. She really did. She told Billy a whole bunch of lies, including pretending that Bill McLaughlin's medical device had been invented by her. She said that she had, like, millions because of that invention.
0: Oh. And her sometimes sales jobs also included inventing genius medical advances. Yes.
1: And she also told him that her breasts were real. Oh. He said that even she had a sticker on her mirror in her closet that said, yes, they're real and they're fabulous. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. One thing she failed to mention was that her fiancé had been murdered and she had been suspected of it. She failed to mention that one to him. Uh Uh-huh. You leave that off the resume. Yeah. John Packard filed for divorce from Nanette in July of 2003- They had been married for roughly five years around that time, and J.C. was about three and a half. Nanette got married to Billy in August of 2006 and gave birth to their only child, Cruz, on December 19, 2008. Throughout the marriage, Nanette would end up bankrupting Billy by getting him to co-sign on loans she took out that she never repaid and using his credit cards to buy herself extravagant gifts.
0: Yikes. Sorry, Billy.
1: So while the murderers are out there living their worst lives, they didn't even know that new DA in Orange County, Matt Murphy, had decided to reopen their case. So he put lead detective Larry Montgomery on it, and Larry tirelessly poured through the evidence. He found the tapes of the interviews especially enlightening. So based on these old tapes, he found a couple of things that they had not noticed or followed up on. Okay. The number one being that this guy, Robert Cottrell, his fiance had called. And she had said originally around the time of the murder that, hey, my fiance has a software company and he knows the man and woman who are on the news. The And it was Nanette and Eric. And he said that they used to make out all the time at the gym where he met them. And also that Nanette, wanted to invest in his software company and that she had started approaching him about investing around the fall of 1994 before he was murdered in December. Okay. And that they had a meeting, a serious meeting about it in November of that year. And she told him that she was not liquid, that she did not have the funds to invest at that time, but she was shortly to come into money. And that she should be able to pull the resources in January after the holidays. Yep. Yeah. So uh, Larry Montgomery had to do some major police work to figure of out who course, this was because yeah. I guess the woman who called didn't say his name in the original interview. And so they had to like look up who the woman's name was to see if she was still married to the guy to see who started a software development company. But they found him okay. and he said he was willing to testify. Okay. Okay. And so Larry Montgomery's like, yes, one, boom, woo. Second thing he found was a taped recording of Suzanne saying her bit. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is enough to break the case. The fact that he told her that she's saying, he said this to me, he said this to me. And the time he said it, yep. nobody knew those details. Yep. So Larry Montgomery's like, this one can blow the whole case open. This is all we need. And so he got in touch with Suzanne and she's like, I absolutely I'm not scared anymore. I am, like, sad it took me so long to come to the police. Yeah, that's
0: not on her. I
1: know. And she's like, I will do anything you want. I'm going to come and testify. I'll talk to you. Like, I'm ready to put them away. So Suzanne's, like, all in. So also around this time, obviously, forensics and ballistics had improved in yeah. nature. So at the time of the shooting, they believed it was a Beretta 9 millimeter, But there was, like, 20 different types of guns that it possibly could be based on the spent shell casings. Okay. By now, ballistics had improved to the point where it was exactly the gun that was registered to Eric that they had proof that he had bought. Yes. So they're like, okay, with all of those things combined, we think we can arrest them and go for this now. And Matt Murphy was like, hell yeah. Like, I'm the prosecutor on this. Let's go. I'm going to convict these motherfuckers. Matt Murphy's really cool. He's like on both programs. And I just like I get a real good vibe from him. I really like him. Oh, they also did driving tests, basically trying to see if his alibi would match up. First of all, they didn't even believe his alibi at all. No. They're like, she dropped him off at the pedestrian access gate and he went in, killed him, and then went over to the Thunderbird nightclub that was only a few hundred yards from the house over the over bridge. Over the bridge, Yeah. yeah. And so they didn't even believe that he had this alibi. But through doing driving tests, they also figured out that even if his alibi was correct, he still would have had time to do the murder. That's crazy. So they're like, we don't care about this. We have to arrest them at this point. So in May of 2009, both Nanette and Eric were ripped from the lives they had fraudulently built. <sighs> Eric was arrested after leaving his fiance's house, Port Rosie, while continuing to neglect his four children and be a general loser. Yeah. And Nanette was arrested at the home she shared with sucker number three, a.k.a. husband number three, and her poor six-month-old baby. This baby was still breastfeeding, too, oh when they arrested God, her. Oh,
0: my It's fucked up. It's just, I feel— but like, six months is fine. Like,
1: I mean, it's fine on the end of the day, but can you imagine being Billy? You are finding out for the first no. time that your wife— was involved in a murder. She's now arrested. And you're left with a traumatized, screaming six-month-old who has no idea why the only mother it's ever known and its only food source is gone now. It was deeply traumatic for Billy and hopefully not the now child, you know? I'm sure that the child can't remember this, hopefully. But like, you know, these things affect you even if you can't remember them, you know? So yeah, this was a bad, bad, bad situation for Billy who was completely blindsided. He had no idea that she had spent 180 days in jail for her fraud. He didn't even know anything about this relationship. So the plan was when they would arrest these two people at the same time on either coast was to do a race to see who would turn on each other first. Oh, God. So they are working both angles. yep. But neither of them flip.
0: Really? They
1: stuck to their story. I mean, I think that they really thought they could get away with it. And they would have had to admit their own guilt in some way with whatever story they spun, right? So instead, they both said, nope, we're totally innocent. I don't know what you're talking about. You have no proof. We didn't do it. We're sticking to our story. So they're like, well, whatever. We're going to trial anyway. You guys don't make it easy on yourself. It's fine. We don't care. We're still going to prosecute you. And at first, Billy, husband number three, did try to stick around. He, I mean, gosh, he was interviewed by the author of the book, Caitlin Rother. And he said that he was driving this six-month-old screaming and crying for hours to get to the prison. And then when he'd get there, obviously, the baby can't touch his mother. They're through glass. Yeah. And so the baby would like freak out because he could see his mother, but not touch her. And then also, you know, they're between six months and a year, more than that, they want to crawl. They want to move. And he's in a dirty prison and he doesn't want to put the baby on the ground to let the baby crawl around on the prison floor. So he's trying to keep the baby happy. happy, And then he's putting the baby back in the car for another two to three hour drive. Jesus. Yeah. And he said with traffic, sometimes it was four hours. How
0: often do you do that?
1: He's doing it once a week. Oh my God. Yeah, so he's like having a really hard time with this, but he's also having a hard time because he hires a defense attorney for Nanette, and the defense attorney is like, "Okay, let's get to the bottom of what is true about her backstory and prove that this couldn't happen, right?" So they start talking about her backstory, and they're going through the things that she told Billy, and one by one, there's it's a lie. It's a lie. It's a lie. It's a lie. He gets to the end of these meetings with her attorney. And he realizes that the only real thing she ever told him was her, blood her name. Type. Her, her blood type. Her name and her kids' names. Okay. She also lied to him about K. Ross. She said that he was physically abusive, that he had sexually assaulted her. He, She had done that on purpose to keep the two husbands yeah, from apart. communicating. Yeah. Yep. And she had even told Billy that K. Ross had molested Lachelle.
0: That's not okay.
1: Yep. And so when Billy found out that she had lied about all this stuff, he like very sensitively approached Lashelle and he's like, look, I'm finding out a lot of stuff about your mom and I'm really sorry if this brings up some bad memories, but is it true that your father molested you? And she was like, no. In fact, mom tried to convince me that he had, oh. but I later realized that it absolutely hadn't happened. Oh she God, just was like talking me into it. fucked. Billy also discovered that her second husband, John Packard, had been paying her seventeen thousand five hundred dollars a month in child support and support in general, and she had told Billy that she was only getting six thousand five hundred. So he, had
0: he was been spending twelve hundred dollars a month, or twelve thousand dollars a month.
1: Yeah, and so they never commingled their finances, and she actually never took Billy's last name. But he was paying the mortgage. He was paying the bills. He was paying for all those extravagant dates and all of the designer clothes she wanted. And that's why he was going into bankruptcy with this while she was sitting on $17,500 a month that she wasn't telling him about. So yeah, he is like, I am completely fed up with this woman when he finds all of this stuff out. He's like, I'm done with the lies and the debts. And the debt wasn't just financial, it was emotional. I mean, watching your baby go through this because- his mother killed somebody and was greedy. You're so angry, like watching your child cry, you know? So he's like, screw this. And he filed for divorce from Nanette, won full custody of Cruz, of course. And they were totally legally divorced even before she went to trial. Good. So speaking of trial, Eric's trial was first in June of 2011 and it became a media sensation because of the millionaire NFL player and sexy con woman love triangle angle. Obviously. Obviously. Matt Murphy said that Eric's motivations were greed and jealousy. He was a broke, deadbeat dad with a washed-up football career. Yikes. No lies detected there. With Nanette's payouts from Bill's will, the two could live it up. The prosecution's evidence pointed to the two-shots-pause, two-shots-pause... Yeah. Situation that was witnessed not only by Kevin, but also another neighbor who heard it. Okay. And this was actually a shooting technique called a double tap that Eric had learned about in firearms training. So they could prove that he knew this technique. They brought up the constant lying about the murder weapon. The witness for the Ace Hardware Store testified and identified Eric. And, of course, Suzanne Kogar testified to the threats Eric had made, the details he had shared, and the maybe I did, maybe I didn't smirk. The defense tried to create reasonable doubt by throwing the blame on two of the other known suspects. In a depraved move, they tried to say that it was Kevin.
0: Are you for real?
1: Yeah. So that was just gross. And then, of course, they also said it also could have been Nanette. So they weren't really, like, giving you a full scenario. They're like, could have been this guy. Could have been her. Could Could have been. Could have been. Reasonable doubt. They argued that why they thought it was somebody who was close to Bill was that the killer had gotten within two feet of Bill at some point. And they argued that only a person he had trusted could have gotten that close to him without, like, him screaming or alerting somebody.
0: Yeah, unless he was already dead.
1: Yeah, I mean, he could have snuck in very easily, you know? He had a key. You wouldn't know you're sitting in your dining room. No, there's no way. Having a cocktail. Yeah. You don't hear everything, even if he just kind of turned, you know? Yeah. They also brought a witness in who testified that they had shot at a gun range with Nanette, saying that she was actually a good shot. So they're trying to, like, make it sound like her. Because Nanette had told the police that she was scared of guns and she never shot them. So this person was saying she did and she was actually a pretty good shot. The biggest debate in Eric's trial was the timeline and the alibi. The defense argued that there was no way that Eric could have made that phone call at Denny's, killed Bill, and then also ended up at work by the time they said. The prosecution argued that there was no evidence that he ever made the call. Now, the only evidence the defense had was that a former attorney of his, one that represented him right around the time of the murder when he was a suspect, said that he saw a credit card bill that showed he had made a phone call at that time. But after that, no one could produce this credit card bill. Okay, And so basically they were like, well, you know, it's been 15, 16, 17 years. I think it's been 17 years by the time Eric goes to trial. Things get lost. And the prosecution was like, not if it's going to keep you out of jail, it doesn't get lost. So, yeah, no. So they're like, first of all, we don't even think this happened. Second of all, even if he did make this call at 8.50, like he said, you know, he is so close to where the murder took place. And then his place of work is only a few hundred yards away. He could have absolutely done it anyway. So it doesn't even matter. We don't even have to argue about whether this call existed or not because it doesn't matter. He could still have done it. So then the defense also tried to say that there was no way that this all could have happened in the time frame that the prosecution is saying anyway because there was heavy traffic that night. Because Newport Beach does something every year called a boat parade around Christmas time. And that night they were doing it. So there's no way because traffic was so heavy. But they didn't didn't even double check this because Matt Murphy was like, actually— here's the record, the event history. And it was two nights after the murder, you idiots.
0: Oh my God.
1: Yes, they were using it based on a witness's recollection. Like, yeah, I think um, I, think I paged him because there was heavy traffic and I wanted him to leave early. So I was telling him to get on the road so he could be here on time. So it must've been the boat parade. So it must've been the boat parade. And they didn't even check that out. So Matt Murphy's like, yeah, I'll full of shit. And after seven and a half hours of deliberation, that is pretty much what the jury said. Nice try. You guilty. Uh, uh. I got to give it to Eric's coaches, though, or whoever taught him not to quit when you're down, because he kept fighting even after he was convicted, saying that he couldn't be sentenced because he had information about the real killer that he hadn't revealed during the trial. Uh-huh he told a cockamamie story about Nanette hiring a hitman and that the hitman had used his Beretta in the commission of the murder. Uh Uh-huh. So at first he was like, I don't want to name names because you might kill my kids. And then when he finally named this other guy who had nothing to do with it, they like looked into it and it was just a total bullshit story. And Matt Murphy, the DA was like, In your best case scenario where you're lying anyways, you're still a co-conspirator. Yeah. You're still going to jail because you knew about the crime and your weapon was used in it. Yeah,
0: what, 15 years ago?
1: Yeah, so you're an idiot. So six months after Eric's conviction, Nanette stood trial without her fancy hair treatments. Apparently she did, like, keratin straightening treatments and stuff. And she dyed it blonde. She looked bedraggled and she had this like evil Disney queen skunk stripe in her hair. I'll definitely find a photo of that. But actually her and Eric both kind of had like morphed into like Disney villains. So she had like this like dark, crazy hair with this crazy stripe in it. And then he had gone completely bald. And apparently, I guess he had a really bad hair piece back in (laughs) the 90s that people made fun of him about and he had tried to do like hair plugs and stuff I didn't think it was very obvious from the pictures but some people said it was but by the time he is at trial he's gone completely bald and shaved it okay. so he kind of looks like a wrestling villain okay like a buffed up like WWE WWF whatever like baddie guy okay So Matt Murphy broke down Nanette's motivation at her trial. He said that she was stealing little by little, but then she got greedy. She started taking too much. She also fell in love. So she's introducing this guy to her family and all of her kids' soccer buddies, parents, and she's saying, this is my boyfriend. So how the hell is she supposed to go through with a wedding to a much older man that she clearly has no passion for? And now it's the end of the year, and Bill's accountant is going to flag all of those checks when he does Bill's taxes. So she needed to do something fast before she was thrown out on her ass with nothing for either stealing or cheating. Yeah. And she was going to gain a lot from his death. She was going to get a free beach house for a year, all the money she could steal, at least $1.15 million, a car. And, you know, access to his account still. Yep. So she either plotted with Eric or she just convinced Eric that she was sexually assaulted to enrage him enough to kill this guy. Either way, she's the mastermind who manipulated some guy into killing her fiancé and making her a rich woman. Yep. So they discussed the fraud conviction, the couple looking at the real estate, and the whole considering investment opportunities way before he was dead— and they also talked about the key that was missing, the pedestrian access key yep. was missing from her keychain. So it stands to reason that she Come gave on, it girl. to Eric. Yeah. Meanwhile, her lawyer wasn't really doing her any favors. He's like doing the whole, you know, she's a shitty person, but she's not a killer. So he's like, Yes, she's a thief. Yes, she's a promiscuous, gold-digging slut, but she is not a murderer. He used the S-word during court. That was not me (laughs) extrapolating, Mm -hmm. you know. He said the S-word in in response to her. Like, he went full in. So he's like, she's a terrible person, but she's not a killer. His argument was that what we know of Nanette is that she's very materialistic and that she wants wealth more than anything else. So why would she kill the golden goose? She would have had so much more money if she had married Bill, not some deadbeat dad loser who had no money. But here's the thing. What if the golden goose didn't want to marry her? Yeah. And also Matt Murphy pointed out that the whole fable around the golden goose was that the farmer got greedy and killed the goose. It's like, don't use the fable when the end of that fable is that a human got greedy and did it anyway. So the biggest argument for the defense was that Eric was jealous and unhinged and did it himself without Nanette's knowledge. Oh, they said that, you know, when he bragged to Suzanne, he didn't say, oh, my girlfriend Net wants Bill dead. He said he did. Like yeah. he was only talking yeah. about how he wanted him dead. Well, the jury did not buy it because after only three and a half hours of deliberation, they ruled guilty. And then the judge was like, well done. Congratulations. You made the right decision. Bill's daughters, Jenny and Kim, burst into happy tears and hugged Billy, husband number three, and his new fiancé, as well as husband number one, Kay Ross. They were all sitting together. Billy said of the McLaughlins and the whole situation that he was relieved that the whole ordeal was over and that he wouldn't have to fight this vengeful woman for custody of his son. Yeah, yeah. He said that he had a weird... Like fear that they wouldn't convict her, and then she'd be in his life forever. Yeah. But then when the um jury panel had deliberated for such a short time, he knew that she was going yeah. down. He also said that he felt grateful for the opportunity to get a fresh start and to be happy again, to not have that dark cloud hanging over me. Thankful that God has given me the strength to get through this whole thing and keep my wits. And he was pleased to see the McLaughlins get the satisfaction and closure they deserved. Here, he'd been complaining about going through his own nightmare for two years, he said, when they had been suffering for more than 17. Yeah. I couldn't imagine, he said. I was glad for them. They're really good people. The one lesson he learned from all this, he said, was trust your gut. Shut the fuck up. He said it. Yeah, it's in the book. (laughs) He said if your significant other tells you something that doesn't sound quite right or conflicts with something he or she has said before, confront that person with your doubts.
0: Good for you.
1: Good for you, Billy. So that whole crew, like the ex-husbands and the victim's family, we were also present together as sentencing for both Nanette and Eric, where Eric made a huge ass out of himself. Like, he was still trying to get his attorneys to appeal based on the fact that he said he knew who the real murderer yeah. was at yeah. this time. He's made up story. And at, when he's supposed to come out for sentencing and to hear victim impact statements, he's, like, in this little box room that's, like, within the courthouse where they keep defendants until it's time for the proceedings to start. Okay. And he refused to come out. He would not come out. So eventually they ended up sentencing Nanette on that day and then sentencing him on a different day. And when he was finally sentenced, he also acted like a huge asshole and was talking back to one of Bill's daughters while well, she's like trying to read her statement wow. and say how how this murder has affected her family. He's like, no, nope, nope. And arguing with her. Wow. Yeah. Apparently, his own attorney was like, went to the Shut press and was like, "I'm sorry, yeah, my uh, client's just a jerk. There's no excusing wow. his behavior," and he said that to the media. Wow. Yeah, he was an asshole. But at the end of the day, both Nanette and Eric received life without the possibility of parole. L-womp.
0: Double L WOP. The double L
1: Double L WOP. Another of Nanette's defrauded exes attended the sentencing, Tom Reynolds, when author Caitlin Rother asked him, what was the big appeal of Nanette that she could get all of these guys? He said, you've heard of Fifty Shades of Grey, right? She was Fifteen Hundred Shades of Grey, which just goes to your power of the good pussy comment. She was just down for whatever. (laughs) She was... She was good in bed. Yep. Nanette was sentenced in June 2012, and the very next month, Billy McNeil married his fiancé, giving Cruz a law-abiding mommy for the first time. I am not usually, like, a fan of, like, I hate it when, like, you know, kids not getting raised by their parent for some reason. Not in this case. Yep.
0: Nope. Bye.
1: Yep. While serving their endless sentences, both lovers have continued to point the finger at each other. Wow. Eric says that the plot was all Nanette's, and if it wasn't her, then she hired somebody else to do it using his gun that he had bought for her, he's Uh now saying. And Nanette said it was all him. Nanette participated in a 2020 program that aired in September of this year. She has now this damaged, dyed, blonde hair look, but in her eyes— you can still see a hint of the conniving seductress she was. So she tried to say <laughs> that she had nothing to do with this. It clearly was just Eric and that she loved Bill so much that if he hadn't died, they would still be together today. Uh huh. Uh huh. Kim McLaughlin and Danette's daughters, like I said, Lachelle and JC were part of the 2020 program as well. And all of the parties discuss some potential changes in California legislature that could potentially free the killers one day. Kim McLaughlin prays that that will never happen. Well, Nanette's daughters yearn for the day that they will get to hug their mother on the outside. It just goes to show how far-reaching and devastating murder is, including to the murderer's family, because these two girls do believe in their mom's innocence. And they miss her. And JC especially missed growing up with a mom. She was like five, I think, when she was arrested. Yeah. And Billy McNeil, husband number three, pointed out that a lot of the defense hinged on saying that Nanette was a good mother. And he was like, a good mother would not kill for greed and leave her children abandoned when she was caught. Okay. You can't in good conscience say that that woman is any sort of good mother. Both parties still maintain their innocence. In 2018, the Innocence Project even looked into Eric's case. I didn't see that there was any follow-up, so maybe— Probably not. They probably just found out that he was guilty. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll keep looking into that one, guys, but I didn't see any immediate updates. And the Wikipedia fun fact this week is that—
0: Wikipedia fun fact.
1: Yes. Thank you. In 2013, Eric was transferred to California State Prison in Corcoran, where he was housed with the infamous Charles Manson. Whoa. Before his death in 2017.
0: Whoa. Wild. If they were buddies.
1: I don't know. I can't see like little Charlie Manson having anything in common with big old Eric Napowski, but who knows?
0: If he could get him in his family, he would.
1: I bet he would. You always need an enforcer. Mm -hmm. In conclusion, if you're a greedy bitch, maybe you shouldn't kill the golden goose. Be a better person than that. Yeah. Also, don't underestimate the power of the business card. Oh, I thought
0: you were going to say the pussy. No, the business card. <laughs> the, the business, business <laughs>
1: card on the windshield. That is some old school sales tactics right there. Yeah, yeah. and for sometimes sometimes salesperson, it sometimes works. Apparently it does. She must have hooked those guys somehow. Wow. And as always, like Billy McNeil says, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up defrauded and potentially murdered. Bye! We love you guys. Bye!